Well, I want to tell you a story this morning about some immigrants. Uh, some immigrants who, in uh, 1882, uh, moved from Rosetta, Rosetto, Italy, to America. This is 1882, and uh, this is a small town in, in Italy, um, Rosetto. And uh, ten men and one boy made the cruise uh, across the pond, if you will, landed in New York, and basically started heading west in search of jobs. Eventually, they found some jobs at a slate quarry near Bangor, Pennsylvania. I think it's about 90 miles uh, west of New York. And when word got back to Rosetto, back in Italy, of the, the opportunities in the new world, uh, another 15 Rosettans came that next year. Uh, to join them in uh, Bangor, Pennsylvania, to settle in the same town, working in the same quarry. And the migration continued on for the next decade. So that about 10 years after that, even 1,200 Rosettans made the journey in a single year to join them all in Pennsylvania. And, and with the increasing numbers, these Italian immigrants right overran the town of Bangor and purchased some land outside of, uh, of Bangor um, on a, a rocky hillside connected to, to Bangor by this, this uh, rocky road, um, rutted wagon path in those days. Um, and, and they built closely clustered two-story stone houses, built a church, and, and they named their new town. Initially, it was called New Italy, but it soon changed to Rosetto. It seemed only appropriate that almost everybody in there right, spoke Italian from the homeland. And then in 1896, um, this is about 15 years after that first uh, group of people came, there was a young priest who came to town. And he set up spiritual societies and, and organized festivals and encouraged town folk to, to plant onions and potatoes and beans and melons and fruits. He gave out seeds and bulbs and the town literally came to life. Um, they, they raised pigs in their backyard. They, they raised grapes for homemade wine. They built schools. They built parks, they built cemeteries, small shops and bakeries and restaurants all opened along the main avenue. And there's a vibrant, happy community there in Rosetto, Pennsylvania. And, and this continued like this for decades uh, until 1950. Uh, a doctor named Stuart Wolf came to um, the region there and uh, was, he was a, is a medical doctor and he gave a medical talk. And he happened to be talking in, in passing afterwards. He went out with a drink uh, for a drink with a, a fellow physician who heard his talk and and they were there in the restaurant talking and, and just in passing this 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 uh, physician said to Stuart Wolf said you know I've been practicing 17 years in this area here and, and I get patients from all over and I rarely find anyone from Rosetto under the age of 65 with heart disease and, and then kind of things continued on and it it, it, but but this, this comment here, right, piqued the interest of Dr. Wolf because in the 1950s, right, before cholesterol-lowering drugs, before uh, a great um, uh, understanding of education about the dangers of heart disease and preventative measures taking place, heart disease was a leading cause of death in men under 65 in America. And it was impossible, really, um, to be a doctor and not see heart disease. And so... Dr. Wolf decided to investigate. And so in 1961, with the full help of this community in Rosetto and some medical students, he sought to understand this. And so with an onslaught of people, he gathered death certificates, he gathered physician records and genealogies. He even one summer took over a local school 
and uh, with the mayor's support, invited everybody to come in for uh, uh, blood samples and EKGs that were performed there. And, and what they found is this. They found that virtually no one under 55 had died of a heart attack or shown any signs of heart disease in this village. The death rate from heart disease in Rosetta was half of that of the United States as a whole. The death rate from all causes in Rosetta was about 30 to 35% lower than expected. And so right, he investigated further and he, he called in a sociologist friend named John Brune to help him. And he hired even more students, right? Sociology uh, students and medical students. And they went house to house interviewing everyone under 21 years of age. And what they found was amazing. They found in this town there was no suicide, no alcohol, no alcoholism, no drug addiction, very little crime, nobody on welfare. People, the only reason people were dying in this, this city were of old age. And, you know, so they looked, right? So what's, what's the cause of this? Is it diet? They, they looked into diet. You know, maybe it's this diet they brought over from Italy, but they found out that in America the diet was a lot worse than it was in Italy. In Italy, they had the nice olive uh, oil. Instead, in uh, Pennsylvania, where they settled, they, they cooked with fat. In fact, 41% of their diet was fat. They, they looked, maybe it was exercise, right? Thinking, right, maybe these, these people would get up in the crack of dawn and run six miles every day. But that, that was not the case for many of them were overweight, struggled with obesity, and they smoked heavily. Well, they looked into genetics, right? And maybe they thought that there was just something special about these Italians who came over. Um, but they, they looked at other Rosettans who'd, who'd settled in other parts of the United States, and um, their death rates were high, as to be expected, with the, the standard where people are. This may be location. Maybe they found the fountain of youth. <laughs> maybe that's right, right where it was, right? Or maybe just right in this place, right alongside the mountain, was the, was the big thing, the key to their health. But... The two nearest towns, Bangor and Nazareth, both about the same size as Rosetto, both popular, the same sort of hardworking European immigrants. They found the death rates from heart disease three times that of Rosetto. Finally, he figured it out. Here's what Malcolm Gladwell says. He says, the secret of Rosetto wasn't diet or exercise or genes or location. It was Rosetto itself. As Brune and Wolf walked around the town, they figured out why. They, they looked at how the Rosettans visited one another, stopping to chat in Italian on the street, say, or cooking for one another in their backyards. They learned about the extended family clans that underlay the town's social structure. They saw how many homes had three generations living under one roof and how much respect grandparents commanded. Living a long life, the conventional wisdom at the times depended upon said that we depend upon who we were, that is our genes. It depended upon decisions we made on what we choose to eat and, and how much we choose to exercise and how effectively we're at being treated by the medical system. But no one was used to thinking about health in terms of community. And the important takeaway from that, that whole story is this, is that community is healthy. It's healthy for us. It's good for us. That's the way that God has made us. He has made us to be in community with one another. He's made us social beings. In fact, we do best when we live in community. And it makes sense then, right? When God does a major work among us, that his fruit is strong and vibrant community. And that's exactly what we see in our text this morning. In fact, we see one of the greatest pictures in all the Bible of genuine biblical community. It's in Acts chapter 4. You can turn there if you haven't done so already. My message this morning is entitled Community in the Early Church. It comes from chapter 4, 
verses 32 through 37. And I just say how appropriate to think about community is for us in this day of coronavirus, right? When so much of us have been secluded and alone and off by ourselves. And that's causing some damage, I think, just in terms of community helps and builds. And if we're away, it's just difficult. Well, here's what, here's what Dr. Luke writes. He says this. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, it's interesting, much of the book of Acts is all about the, the expanding church and the church triumphant. It's the gospel going from town to town to town and the church being built up and grown, growing. And, um, but here, it's interesting, we pause. And rather than looking out, we sort of have these, these verses, these six verses, look in. And they describe to us what was taking place in the church in Jerusalem. And really, they serve as good aspirations of what we should be as a church. What, what, what I'm going to do by outline this morning, I'm just going to pull out some characteristics of this church. And really, my hope and vision is that we would understand and experience that these sorts of characteristics ought to be true of us as well, especially if we seek genuine biblical community like we're trying to do. The first characteristic we see this is great unity. It says in verse 32, the, number, the full number of those who had believed were of one heart. <clears throat> and soul and no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common he begins here by talking about the, the full number right we're talking thousands of people on the day of pentecost that was three thousand and later in chapter four and verse four we're told the total number was up to five thousand men and so when you add women and children we're, we're, we're talking more thousands beyond that Perhaps 10,000, perhaps even, even more. And that's what makes the book of, of Acts so exciting. If people coming to faith in Jesus and coming by the thousands. And really from the best that we can tell, it's only been a matter of months since Jesus was, was crucified and buried and risen from the dead. And here we have thousands in the church. And this, by the way, is genuine church growth. Much of the church growth we see today is, you know, church starts small and then it grows up really rapidly. Well, it's just people transferring from one place to another. Not so here. They didn't transfer from one church to another because there weren't any churches at all. These were new believers coming into the fold by the thousands. This was revival. This is the working of the, the Spirit of God. But it's interesting, verse 32 is not the emphasis upon numbers. It just says the full number of those. Like all of them who were there, these thousands. The emphasis, verse 32, though, is upon the unity. Look what it says of this full number of those who believed. He says they were of one heart and soul. Described the form of the unity that was in the church. They were united in heart. They were united in soul. Here you had thousands of souls acted as if they were one soul. And you had thousands of hearts acting as if there was only one heart. They weren't divided. They were united in the gospel. 
They, they, they were unified. And note, note that what unified them was the gospel. It's not their, their particular interests, their same backgrounds or political views or, or, or practices. No, it was the gospel. We, we read here in verse 32 that these were of one heart and one soul <clears throat> were those who, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> were those who believed. That is, they believed in the gospel. They believed the good news of Jesus Christ, who, who was God come in the flesh, lived on earth, a perfect life for us, hated by the religious leaders, beaten and crucified upon a cross, dying for our sins, buried and then raised from the dead to verify that everything he said was true, that those who believe in him, their sins can be forgiven. And that's what they believe. They believe in the gospel and that's what united them all. And we see this expression here about one heart and one soul speaks about the depth of their unity. You know, when, when God calls us to worship him, he calls us to worship him with our whole heart. Right. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And likewise here, just the fact that the love of the Lord has come deep within us. Our love for other believers ought to come from deep within us as well. Right? Just, just, just depth of, of, of all that we are. And, and that's how they had this unity. They were one heart and one soul. And I just say this, church family, that the only way that we can be of such heart is for us to be vulnerable to one another. Um, people need to see your heart. They need to see your soul. If we're going to be one heart and one soul. Right? We need to have open hearts, if you will. And sadly, to say this, the church today rarely enters such depth. Simply satisfied to stay on the distance, right? There's hiding that goes on in the church, lest others really see what's going on in the heart. Sunday morning comes to show us if all is well, when all is not well. If all is not well, we can't get into the heart. We can't can't get in and understand our souls. We just play church. We need to rejoice with those who rejoice. We need to weep with those who weep. You know, and Facebook's really good with rejoicing those who rejoice, right? It's, it's this persona, right? Only half a persona. Look at all the good things. Look what I've done. Look at these activities. And yet, the other half is often not there. And I think some is that, you, that you, there's an appropriate way to share being open. But in order to have this one soul and one heart, in order to weep with others, we need to be open with each other. I saw a great illustration of this yesterday. Yvonne and I are out taking a walk. And uh, it's yesterday afternoon, and I happened, we were, we were walking by, and we happened upon these signs in the, in the driveway um, along our walk. And I stopped, and I said, Yvonne, I, I want to I get a picture of that. So Yvonne stood here, and so I walked back. It was maybe 40, 40 feet or so, and, and I took a picture. And I took a picture of these signs that said, no trespassing. It says, caution, no soliciting. And so I was there taking a picture of the sign, and I hear this little, Steve, and Yvonne is over there. Okay, so, so picture here, Yvonne is over here, and I take a picture of these signs, and out comes this woman. She's kind of like, what are, what are, what are you doing? What are you? And I'm just saying, well, I, I kind of like your signs. And so I was taking a, a picture of your signs. Um, I didn't say I wanted to use them as an illustration for a church the next day. And, 
And uh, then she proceeded to speak about how needed they were and uh, just how often she's had to call the sheriff because people haven't actually followed the advice of these signs. And so I, I, I kind of said, wow. And so I was just thankful to get out of there without her calling the sheriff to identify these people walking along, around in the neighborhood. Because I wasn't trespassing. I was just right there on the street. And uh, I didn't get a picture of her. That would have been sort of interesting. She probably had a scowl on her face. But I just say this, right? Too often in the church, this is the posture of our soul and our heart. No trespassing. No trespassing here. In fact, uh, Yvonne and I even know of a, of a friend of ours who's dealing with um, some difficulties with her daughter and, and had a confrontation with her about her dating relationship that wasn't so good. And um, things were really hard. We're praying for her. We kind of counseled to give advice with that and basically came back. Yesterday, I found out this text came back and said, um, Mom, you don't run my life. Um, I just want to set some boundaries here for what you can look into my life about and set some real clear boundaries. And she was saying, no trespassing into my heart. I want to do as I will. And I just say this, uh, such an attitude is prevalent in all of us, right? Yeah, certainly we'll come in, but not, not too far. And at some point, we got there's no trespassing. But if we're going to be one heart and one soul, it requires some openness and vulnerability we can share our joys and share our our burdens well we, we see further examples of the the oneness of the early church here in verse 32 that it was not only just with an open heart but it was with open hands they had as well verse 32 no one said that any of the things they had belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common and here you just see open hands uh, uh, people sharing what they had Everything's in common. Literally, everything is in fellowship. Fellowship means like joining common, commonality. So they had everything in fellowship with one another. And that's what fellowship is. So when we so share our lives, that's what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. Now, this isn't communism. Communism says what's yours is ours, dictated from the top. That, that's not what this is. What this says is from within it says, what's mine is yours, because there's an open hand there, not of compulsion in any way, but merely says that everything that, that I have has been given me by, by God, and so I will share it with those who believe what's mine is, is yours. Uh, keeping your own property is, is um, not only right, but it's right even here in chapter 5, verse 4. We'll see next week, right, when this goes bad, but... And I says, Vira, um, Peter's confronting you. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? You, you, it was yours. Right? This wasn't dictated from the apostles. This says, no, nothing is yours. No, this was, we have ours, but we hold it with open hands and we, we share it and we use, we use it with others. And I, 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 when I think about this, um, my mind goes to the Reet family. I'm normally sitting right here. I don't know where they are. I just want to honor the the Reet family this morning because they model that. What's theirs? They, they say, what's mine is yours. They have a cabin. I remember this was, I don't know, sir, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, when they're going to build that cabin, they came and talked to me and says, you know what? We know some people who build cabins and then their hearts get so sucked away at that and then they kind of lose, lose a fellowship of the church. And they said, we just want to make sure that's not done. And we so want to use this for the people of the church, ministry for them. 
If you want to have a cabin for a marriage getaway sometime, talk to Dirk and Nancy. The price is right. Beyond that, Dirk is a trailer. I've borrowed that trailer a dozen times, probably, to transport things. I just drive up there, hook it up. He helps me hook it up, and I go away, and I bring it back. He's a wood splitter that I've used three or four times over the years. It's ours. It's his. And on top of that, he's got skills. I remember a while ago, about 15 years ago, some folks in in our church were having leakage in the basement of their house. And he just went over and he said, oh, the problem is your water's not draining. It's just pooling up here. He says, what am I supposed to do? And so he built like a trench from the house out and uh, engineered it all how, how it was done. And, and I know about that because I was in there helping and I was the one digging. And Dirk was out there supervising like he does. I remember there's a guy in the church who needed a restraining wall put up in their yard. Told him the stones to purchase and how to do it. And uh, I remember putting these stones up there because I was helping this guy at church do that. And Dirk was, was back there telling us how and where to put the stones. Crucial, but just sharing his, his knowledge. I remember another family at church taking down the wall in their home. Dirk consulted them to see what was load-bearing and how that was. I remember another family had a concrete slab built in their home, and he cons- consulted how to do that. Special doors recently put in a, in a home recently. He built a cross in our auditorium. He just, he just pours himself out and gets the greatest joy from that. And I just I say, I haven't told the half of it. He's worked for missionaries. He's gone on missions trips. He's helped just with his skills. He just gives. And that's a, a model for us. If you just even think about in what ways are you skilled? What things do you have that you share with others? Do, do you have things that are held openly so that people use them? And I just think even in, in my own life, before as a pastor, as an IT professional, I have some computer skills. They're waning after 20 years not being in the industry. But the concepts are still there, and I still have some degree of that. And I've, I've spent much time with people, consulting them and helping them with their computers over the years. If you have a computer problem, talk to me. I'll see what kind of help I can, can, can give you. I know some of you have skills in sewing, have sewed things. We have things in our house People of the church have sewed for us. Um, maybe there's music skills or some sort of equipment that you have. I just encourage you, if we want to have unity at the church, to hold your things with open hands. So have open hearts, be vulnerable, have open hands, be willing to give and use and share. Well, let's move on, right? The early church not only had great unity, they also experienced great power. We see that in the first half of verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, what was the power? I think the power was their boldness. It was the Holy Spirit working through them to speak boldly. We, we see that in chapter 4 and verse 31. Right? Just the, the very last verse before we're coming here. And they, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This boldness is the way the Holy Spirit right, works in our lives. It was evident in the lives of these apostles. They stood before the religious authorities in chapter 4. And in this council, they saw their boldness. As they proclaimed that Jesus is the only way. There's salvation in no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Except 
the Lord Jesus, chapter 4, verse 12. And when they preached that way, they saw, chapter 4, verse 13, they saw the boldness of Peter and John. And in fact, they're going to see the boldness of Peter and John again in chapter 5. Right? When told not to preach anymore, like they said, chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than man. And it cost them. It cost them severely. As a result of it, they were beaten by the religious authorities. But they were bold. That's the Holy Spirit. And what, what was happening is the power of the Holy Spirit. But not, not only the, the manner in which they preached, but also the results. When you see so many people coming to faith in Jesus, thousands, if I talk, as I talked about earlier, as we work our way deeper into the book of Acts, we're going to see more and more and more to come. In, in chapter 6 and verse 7, this is a, what's called a summary statement. We'll see several summary statements throughout the book of Acts. But here we read chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, so what, what we see here is even that they continue with great power. They were giving testimony. They, they were continuing to preach. And the church was expanding. You say, what did they preach? Well, it says right there, they were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They preached the resurrection. In fact, we're going to see this often in the book of Acts. It was the resurrection they preached. In chapter 1, they saw Jesus risen from the dead. In chapter 2, Peter preached Jesus risen from the dead from Psalm 16, which David said, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He said, here was Jesus. He was the Holy One. He didn't undergo decay. He was raised from the dead. He said, this Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we all are witnesses. Acts 2, verse 32. Uh, In in chapter 3, Peter preached the resurrection. He preached to those who were in the temple. Right? You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murder to be granted to you. They asked for Bar- Barabbas instead. He said, but you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. They killed him, but God raised him and they're witnesses to this. In, in chapter 4 and verse 2, we, we see that the religious leaders were greatly annoyed. The teaching of the people because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And, and, and what, what Paul is... What, what Luke is talking about here, when he's talking about proclaiming, giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that, that's not talking about the past. It's talking about the future, what's going to go on in chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. And we're going to see this is the drumbeat of the preaching of the apostles, was the resurrection going forward. And there's, there's not a lot of details here in chapter 4 and 5 and, and 6, but, but as we go on, there's going to be more. There's some detail in chapter 5, verse 30, where Peter preaches. He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. He continued on in chapter 5 and verse 31 about how God exalted him at his right hand. As leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit who God has given to those who obey him. And as we go on. Further, further, we're going to see just the resurrection pounded. So it's really what they are witnesses. They saw Jesus risen from the dead. It's the easiest thing for them to tell about. This wasn't some fanciful conspiracy theory. This was this was true. This was real. Relentless were they at preaching the resurrection. Really, then the question of application comes to us. Are you relentless in preaching the resurrection? So you have opportunity to share with people. It's the resurrection coming out of your lips. <laughs> it's a 
good for us today. You know, I have a, a non-Christian friend of mine who uh, talked with a little bit about spiritual things. I haven't a lot, but I'm close enough to him that um, he called me this week and told me that his father died. He went in hospice on Monday and died on Thursday, maybe. I forget what it was. <clears throat> maybe Friday. It was pretty quick, but he had... He had cancer, and he was going down, and so it was somewhat anticipated. But I don't think he's involved in any church, doesn't have any sort of faith community whatsoever. And so I just happened to know him, and so he called me. And I'm hoping to get together with him um, next week sometime. And, and as I thought about this past, I'm like, you know what? What do I need to tell him? He needs to hear the resurrection that there is hope beyond the grave for those who believe. And so you just pray with me about this. I pray for a tra- chance to talk to him and pray for a chance to really to get to the core of what things are about. Death is on his mind. And the resurrection is, is right there as well. May God grant the Holy Spirit to come with power in his life. Well, there's great unity of the church. There's great power. And we see, thirdly now, great grace. Um, that's the last half of verse 33. It says, and great grace was upon them all. Uh, that's a statement of the sovereign working of God in the life of the early church. Because grace is what God gives. Grace is, is a gift. And, and God is giving grace to everyone. And in fact, even if you realize this, the end of verse 32, and great grace was given uh, to them all. That really is what guides the first two. Because the only way you're going to have great unity is with great grace. And the only way you're going to have great power and preaching and sharing and witnessing is with what? It's with great grace. Because God needs to come. God needs to, to share. God needs to unite. God needs to give the power in, in the preaching. You know, and if you're familiar at all with the concept of revival, you'll recognize that this is the thing that we, we see in the book of Acts. Revival is taking place in the book of Acts. When, when, when the Spirit of God comes and, and revives, lifts again the, the church and convicts people of their sin. And, and people then see the work of Jesus in their lives. And they repent of their sin and, and they believe and greater numbers come into the church. And then the, the attendance in the church rises up. That's what revival is. And then that's what we see here in the book of Acts and, and, and in history, right? That, that's how it always works, right? Churches plot along for the, this long time. And then this season of revival comes. And the Holy Spirit is, is coming and convicting people. And then they believe and there's a attendance spike and then it levels out again. And an attendance spike and it levels out again. If you've read any of the revival history of the early uh, church in America, you know how that, that's the case. Where these pastors are just continuing to do what they're doing and their, and their attendance. If they would uh, re, um, chart their attendance over time, it's kind of like they go along and then there's whoop, there's a spike and then it goes along like this. And there's whoop, there's a spike and then they go whoop. It's, it's always during these seasons of revival in which it takes place. Then ministry goes back to normal again. And then it whoop, it peaks up again when, when these pastors have experienced all this this revival and there's no rhyme or reason for it there's no explanation for it there's no methodology to it there's there's no change in what they do they just continue on just loving people preaching the word and it's the only explanation is the spirit of god that blows you will as jesus said john 3 verse 8 the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes 
So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And that's revival. So the, the Spirit blowing as He wills. And I think through Acts, we ought to be praying that the Holy Spirit would blow in us at Rock Valley Bible Church. That we just continue to plod along and then many people convicted of their sin and coming to, coming to faith in Jesus. And we might see that. But it's really, revival comes an extraordinary measure of the Spirit. And I love how Ian Murray describes it. He says this, What happens in revivals is not to be seen as something miraculously different from the regular experience of the church. The difference, he says, lies in degree and not kind. In other words, in, in an outpouring of the Spirit, spiritual influence is more widespread. Convictions are deeper and feelings more intense. But all this just a heightening of normal Christianity. True revivals are extraordinary. And what is experienced at such times is not different in essence from the spiritual experience that belongs to Christians at other times. Right? In other words, right, it's, it's going along. But there's times where it's, the Spirit is especially there. And that's why my third point is entitled Great Grace. Because you know what? We always have grace. God continues to pour out His grace at church. He continues to give it. So by grace, you're saved. Any of us saved, we're saved through grace, by grace, right? Through faith, but it's by grace. And Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He said, I worked and I labored, and I strived and I strived, but ultimately it was God's grace towards me. And so God's grace is here. God's grace is sufficient for your weaknesses. Second Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 but, but here in, in Acts, when we see revival, we see great grace. That is, the grace uh, uh, of a difference, not, not in degree, I'm sorry, not in kind, but in degree. So this isn't a different grace than normal. This is more grace than normal that comes. And if you ever read about revivals in the history of the church, it's, it's super encouraging. Because you see this great grace poured out, and that's, I think, what we should pray. For God's great grace to be poured out upon us. You can't work it up. In his book, Revival and Revivalism, Ian Murray surveyed a handful of men who lived in, in America at various different points in times during the, the revivals, the First Great Awakening in the 1700s and the Second Great Awakening, and, and, and saw these things. And after studying these men who experienced revival in their ministry, here's what he concludes. He says this, The experiences of all five of these men point to the same conclusion. Revivals did not occur in conjunction with special efforts. They were not worked up but were witnessed in the course of the ordinary services of the church. Far from their being planned or announced in advance, those who experienced them were all united in the conviction that God alone had determined the time. In the work of grace, there's no corresponding set period of time between sowing and reaping. The duration of the cycles of time are known only to him before whom a thousand years are but as yesterday when it's past, and it's a watch in the night. And that explains the book of Acts. It was a time of extraordinary working of the Spirit of God upon the life of the church. So much so that God was giving them great grace and pouring out. That's why it's such an exciting thing to see God's grace moving in such a great way. Well, let's look at our last point. We see the characteristics of the early church. Great unity, great power, great grace. And here we see great generosity. This is in the early church, verse 34 through 37. There was not a needy person among them. First, many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. This is just a general statement uh, uh, across the church. How, how is it the church is doing financially? 
How, how are people with their needs? Nobody had any needs. It, well, it's not the people who didn't have needs, but it's the people who had needs, had their needs met by others. There's nobody needy among them because those who were of one heart and one soul with them had open hands with them. They were vulnerable. They let their needs known and they give and they shared and they they helped meet the need. And in such a great way that they they sold their property. They were on Craigslist and they were on Facebook Marketplace selling in their wares so they can supply the needs for other people. However, you know, I don't know if they were on Craigslist or Facebook as much as they were on Realtor.com because it says here what they were selling was even, even their houses, their massive assets to support those in the church. Now, the way they did this in Acts chapter 4 was to give the proceeds to the apostles that the apostles might distribute the proceeds. Now, there's some wisdom in that. The apostles probably had more of a feel for what's going on uh, with the people of the church, more of a feel of people in need, those who really were in need and those who were not. Just, just today, I think some church leaders are probably more in a position to understand who's really in need. As I think I, I, I probably know more about a lot of the details of what's going on in people's life than uh, other people do. So there's, there's, there's a help in that. But I don't think this is the only way to give at all. I think you give how you want to give. Give away as your heart pleases, right? Give it directly to people in the church when you see a need. Give it to help, however that is. Whether that's letting you borrow stuff, whether it's financially giving gifts to people. When you see a need, when you sense a need, just give. Just give. And my hope is that we at Rock Valley Bible Church will be a church with great generosity. And I know that many of you are super generous at Rock Valley Bible Church. I mean, down through the years, I've been super encouraged by the generosity of, of those at church. I was talking this week with a, a church planter who, who was uh, struggling, is struggling, just the fact that they have been planting a church. We're three years out, maybe four years out, I forget what it is, some, somewhere along that realm. And uh, um, their church is still dependent upon the mothership, uh, the, the mother church, financially. And he, he was just so wanting to, to get out from that. I mean, it's like a, kind of like a child that wants to grow up and, and get out. And churches are like that as well. You want to get up and be, be independent and uh, be able financially to, to, to be there. And uh, he, he even knew about how we give over 20% of our giving to missions. So if you give it to us, we, we just get that out. You know, our hope is to be that half of what comes into Brock Valley Bible Church goes out. And he's like, how do you do that? I mean, how, how do you do that? And um, I was able to tell him that um, we're, we were financially independent as a church in a year and a half. He's like, how do you do that? And so he wanted all this advice and counsel. And I said, nothing in my strategy. All right. There's nothing that I did. God has just brought a bunch of very generous people to Rock Valley Bible Church. And we have been blessed greatly. I'm thankful to God for your generosity. This year during COVID, we are doing just fine. If you've seen that, I sent that out in the weekly word a couple of weeks ago. You can find it on uh, the member section of Rock Valley Bible Church. You can just see or look in your weekly word. You can just see it there. Just we're doing fine because God has has been an abundant blessing to us. And we see one example of the general to the specific here in verse 36. We see this man named Joseph who did exactly what. Verses uh, 
34 and 35 were describing. He says this, Joseph, we got to pause to identify this one. This is one who is also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So here was a guy nicknamed by the apostles and nicknamed in a good way. He was called Barnabas, the, the son of encouragement. They called him this because he built people up um, in what he did. And what he said, he was always encouraging. He, to the discouraged, he encouraged them, he helped them. He, and to the hurting, he helped them. And when it came to the church, this man gave a large amount to the apostles to distribute accordingly. We, we see that here. Here's Barnabas. We find out some things about him. He's a Levite. I mean, to the tribe of, of Levi. He's a native of Cyprus, which, by the way, later in Acts is going to be significant. Okay? Um, I'll, I'll tell you what in, in just a little bit how he is. He's a native of Cyprus. He sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He said, well, why is this Joseph, why is this Barnabas mentioned? I don't think he's mentioned because he gave the largest gift. I, I just Maybe maybe he gave the largest gift. They want to highlight him. But in the spirit of just scripture and humility, I don't think that was the case. Um, but I think it's, in some regards, to prepare us for knowing about this man Barnabas. Because he's going to play a large role in the book of Acts. Barnabas was the one who believed in Paul when Paul was on the road to Damascus and uh, he was there to persecute Christians. And then uh, he was converted, seeing this light of of Jesus, uh, he converted going into Damascus, beginning to preach Jesus. And then back in in Jerusalem, they're like, we don't want anything to do with Paul. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was the one who believed in Paul and, and he just believed in him and brought him and associated him with the apostles in the church at Jerusalem. You see that in Acts chapter 9. Or, or Barnabas was the one who, who united Paul with the church in Antioch. So Barnabas was up at the church of Antioch and things were going on. And he's saying, you know what? This church is struggling a little bit. They really need a teacher. They need someone who knows the scriptures really well. And so Barnabas went and he found Saul, Paul, uh, and he brought him up to Antioch. And he said, here's your guy. He's going to be able to teach you. He, you believe in him. And here's just Barnabas. That's what encouragement is. Encouragement is lifting other people up, putting, putting Paul forward. Barnabas didn't say, oh, I'll teach you all. He said, Paul is going to be the one to come and teach you all. And, and Barnabas actually went out with Paul on the first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. They're ministering and praying the Holy Spirit. and They're fasting. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Paul, to the work that I've called them to. And the first place they went um, off of Antioch, they went right to Cyprus, right to where uh, Barnabas was from, just using his... His connections, if you will. And that was Barnabas. Just this man totally committed. In fact, oftentimes that's how you can tell and see whether someone is committed or not. Right? Just If you could open their checkbook and just see what are they giving financially? What, what, what sort of blood do they have in the game? Do they have blood, sweat, and tears in the game? If they do, they can probably be trusted because they have a big heart for that ministry. Well, I want to close by, by telling you about a book I read this week. Um, called the, the Serial Tycoon. My dad gave me this book a long time ago, and he was super encouraged by it, and I just I picked it up and I read it this week, just knowing a little bit about Henry Parsons Kroll, that he was a, a very wealthy man. Um, and he used his, his wealth then in, in an appropriate way. He was a it's kind of a more modern example, though it's not really modern because he was born in 1855, so he's not quite so modern, but he's more modern than Barnabas. Um, there's a young man. He was 18 years old. He heard Moody 
Dwight Moody preach. He, he came from Chicago, which is where um, Henry Kroll was. And he happened to, to hear him, hear him preach. And uh, one of the things that he was, Moody was talking about is dream big. He, he wanted to go to Scotland and see 10,000 people come to Jesus. And, and he said, Moody even there said, that's right. What about you? Do you ever think big things for God? Huh? And Harry just thought, do you ever think big things for God? And Harry knew that his giftedness was not to be a preacher. But is what he said here like this, just even thinking in his mind. He thought, what kind of big dreams should I have in the service of God? I know I can never preach like Mr. Moody, but maybe I can do something else great for you, Lord. Lord, maybe I can make money and help support men like D.L. Moody. Here's a man of 18. Since he had a business prowess, since he didn't have the preaching prowess, Felt like maybe I can maybe I can do something big. <clears throat> he continued in prayer. He says, oh, God, if you allow me to make money to be used for your service, I'll keep my name out of it. I'll do it so you will get the glory. And so that kind of starts the book. And then the rest of the book tells about his business acumen and just how like whatever he touched turned to gold. He's like King Midas is what he was. Right? He bought a ranch out west and and within a year kind of turned it, doubling his money. And uh, eventually he bought, um, he became the, um, I'm not sure, the highest interest CEO of Quaker Oats. And he was innovative in just, in just uh, the oats. And just particularly even during the Depression time where people wanted meat, but meat cost so much. In his advertisement, he talked about how oats was four times uh, the better nutrition and yet a lot cheaper than, than meat is. And so that flourished and he became wealthy beyond imagination and he remembered his promise of what he's going to do when he, he had this money. And uh, so uh, what happened with Moody, he, he got hold of uh, Moody Bible Institute. And, uh, and what happened was D.L. Moody passed away. And when D.L. Moody passed away, there's a big problem and a crisis at Moody Bible Institute. Henry was invited in. He talked to the board of trustees and he said this. He says, D.L. Moody knew how to raise money from his friends. Right? Because he had that ability to, to think big and dream big and be able to get financial contributions to build Moody Bible Institute and what was going on there. He says, but he's gone now. And there are no more friends of Moody to give the kind of money it takes to run this business. And so for the next 40 years then, Henry Kroll invested himself in Moody Bible Institute, just giving up his time. Every Tuesday, he drove the train, rode the train down. Uh, worked at his office, but every Tuesday then he spent and he gave it to Moody Bible Institute and giving much, much money over the years. It was interesting that even he gave so much money that one time they, they built a building and they wanted to put his name on it. They wanted to say, hey, here's the Kroll Hall. And uh, meeting with these men, the, the, the faculty and trustees were talking about it and they were unanimous. No, we should name it after Henry Kroll. He said it's not going to happen. He said this. He told of how he once heard D.L. Moody speak and how one man can make a difference and how he had asked God to allow him to make money for his causes. And then Henry called the latter half of his agreement. says, I'll keep my name out of it. It will be for your glory. And that's why we don't know the name of uh, Henry Kroll. And yet time to tell, right, if we knew it all, the amount of uh, labor and work and money and finances that he gave to the church, to, to Moody Bible Institute, are immense. And um, he's just a guy who, you know, not, not only just um, was he tithing, he was what's called super tithing. When, when, he, 
when he got so much, he was given more than 10%. He was given more and more and more and more, like very many uh, Christian businessmen down through the history who have been greatly blessed of God. And I think in some regards, this man is like Barnabas. This man is like the early church that was just filled with generosity. And you may, you probably won't, none of you will probably be wealthy like Henry Crowell was. But keep that in mind. Particularly maybe some of you young kids, just keep in mind of just what God can do Right? If, you're, if you're generous to him and to be able just to give and we'll see the, the church be united and built up and, and growing. Here's a man who I didn't even know his connection to Booty Bible Institute until this week until I began reading the book. And uh, just, may God do that among us, right? And w- w- wouldn't it be great if we were a church like this at Rock Valley Bible Church, unified in heart and soul, with open hearts and open hands? That we experienced great power because the, the Spirit was moving in great grace to, to revive people, to bring people to Jesus. All our contacts of who we're talking to, and if you'd grant faith and repentance like he did for the Gentiles, Acts 11, verse 18. It wouldn't be great if we're all generous and giving abundantly that we could all super tithe. Give, giving way beyond even what any sort of uh, um, person might think is appropriate. But just giving to people and giving to the work of God that it would flourish at Rock Valley Bible Church. Well, let me pray for these things. Father, I pray, God, first of all, just for the unity of our church. I pray, Lord, that you would, um, God, keep us unified. I think of this time of coronavirus and just how there's inherent disunity in that of just how to act. I, I pray that our unity would go beyond mass, but would be the gospel that would unify us, that we would bend in love towards other people in this matter. God, I pray that we would, God, be open and would share and let our, our hurts and our sorrows be known, that we would pray and encourage and grant grace and mercy as is appropriate. Father, I also just pray for great power. I pray that the challenge here in the book of Acts is to be my witnesses. Oh God, that we would be your witnesses and that and then that might not fall on deaf ears. God, how often my witnessing has fallen on deaf ears or people don't want it. I just even pray for opportunity this week to talk to this man about the resurrection. I pray that it might not fall on deaf ears. God, but that, that he would be pierced in his heart. God, to believe the realities of Jesus, his death and the burial and resurrection. God, that, that you would work to transform people radically among our midst. And God, I pray that your grace would be among us, God, in deep, deep ways. In massive ways, God, where, where your grace would come. God, to, to bless our union, bless our power, and to bless our efforts as a church. God, give us favor in your eyes. I think of Aaron when he blessed the people. God, may, may his face shine upon you. God, may you shine your face upon us. May you be gracious to us. May you give us peace. Father, I also pray for generosity. God, it's uh, like preaching to the choirs. I preach at Rock Valley Bible Church about generosity. God, but help us to be generous, not only with, with this church and the finances here, but also just beyond, just to thank you for the Pregnancy Care Center, as Brian shared today, about how it has expanded just financially, being able to do more. And I pray even for us that you would financially expand us, so we could do more, even another person on staff, what that would do, uh, God, for us, if we could expand that way, just to have more of of, of me, if you will, more leaders, more time God, to multiply ministry here. And, but even beyond that, God, I pray that we would be generous just with our, uh, our neighbors, our fellow believers, um, 
with all who come across our path. God, help us to, to realize that all we have is from you, God, that we might share it appropriately. God, may, may these things, God, the, the glimpse of the early church be like, like we experience here at Rock Valley Bible Church. God, may we go back to those days. May we experience those times here for us. That's why we're preaching through Acts. God, just to sense your spirit and your moving, how exciting and thrilling it is. I pray you would move us in those ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.